This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Money Is Not Evil podcast, where you will learn about the good money can do for you. We all know knowledge is power, so learn now and then earn. Enjoy. I spend at least a week a year where I go off and just read uh, people's PhD theses and new things that are going on in the field. Bill believed the prime ingredient of his success was his early fascination with computers. You have to understand, when you spend your time thinking intensely about a field you know, from a very young age, uh, which in my case is uh, you know, I was 13 or 14 when I started to get involved, uh, that's where you can do great things, is because your mind has really gotten into it. You, you understand it. What are the ideas that excite you? Or is it just customers? Customers, first. Yeah. Second is, the last century, a company, if you want to grow, I believe you should find a good opportunity. But today, this world is never lack of opportunity. But today, if you want to be a great company, think about what problem you can solve. It's not to catch the opportunity. It's about solving the social problems. If you, because company like Alibaba, we're growing so fast, it's very difficult for one opportunity that can make us last. Such an organization with the power, power by internet, with millions and millions of SMEs, with 400 million consumers, how, what kind of problem you can solve? And... Uh, I'm excited. Anything you, t- you mentioned about cloud computing and talking about the mobile things, anything that's happened in the USA is going to happen in China. There is an amazing degree to which people's ambitions get beaten out of them in these, yes, in, these, really uh, in these top universities. If I, if I look at what uh, people thought my, my senior year in high school, sort of like were very ambitious, they had all these ideas what they were going to do. And if you looked at the same people at uh, sort of college plus five years, sort of nine years later, let's say, it was amazing how much things have been ratcheted down. So I, I do think there's something problematic where all the talented people go to these schools, they're sort of evaluated on the same terms, and at the end, uh, at the end a lot of ambitions are, are beaten out of them. And probably the, the, the one that I think is um, even worse for people than Harvard in this respect uh, might, be a, might be Caltech, where you have you know, these brilliant math, physics people and after four years where you're in the middle of your class, you're convinced that the most you can do with your life is become a line engineer at Lockheed, and maybe you can go into mid-level management uh, 20 years later. And so that, that, is, that sort of is characteristic of, uh, of what I think has happened. And what, what, what I think we need to somehow find a way back to is, is this idea that, um, that there's not just a single track, that there are very different things uh, you can do, you know, the question, you know, what truth do you know that nobody agrees with you on? The, the, the sort of career version of this is what, what are you really good at that other people aren't that good at or, or something like that. And, that's, uh, and that somehow gets discouraged by this, by this incredible homogenization. 
and big ambitions get discouraged, I think. Don't you think everyone, the EU and everyone, and it's true of all of us, I suppose, we, we decide we can make it in a certain line and, and do things a little, you know, move ahead step by step with the kind of... Yeah, there's always... There's the, always the ambition to be a founder, that, that seems to be knocked out. The whole, both the institutions and the mindset that permeates the institutions is almost a denial that that ambition is reasonable or even possible. Well, there's a sense that um, there are all these people who are ahead of you, so there's always this sense... There's so many people who are uh, who are much better or just as good as you. So who are you to think that you can do right. anything um, anything different? And obviously, when everybody starts to think that, nobody does anything. In fact, it becomes self-fulfilling once again. You know, for me, so much of the lesson that that I, I feel like I've learned is. I feel like it's really hard to decide to start a company, right? You know, Facebook, I didn't start it to start a company. I started it because I really wanted this thing personally, and I believed that it should exist globally, although I wasn't quite sure that, that we would be able to play a role in doing that. It was mostly just through kind of like wanting to build it and having it be this hobby and getting people around me excited that it eventually kind of evolved into and got the momentum to become a company. But I never really understood the psychology of deciding that you want to start a company before you understand what you want to do. I mean, this gets back to the question of why did we, why did we first open at, at colleges that had competitors? I, mean, I have this big fear, I think, of getting locked into doing things that aren't actually the most impactful things. I and mean, to me, this is like the trait that entrepreneurs have is they just have this like laser-like ability to go find where they can have the most impact. And, you know, when you take on a new project, especially if you hire people or start a company, you're doing that project. And, I mean, there, there are ways, there are obviously different ways that it can exit and all that, but um, I think having the flexibility to explore a lot of different things, which you can do when you're in college, which is one of the amazing things about being in college, is you can work on all these hobbies um, and, and, and code a lot of stuff and, and try a lot of different things. It's this amazing flexibility that I think most people take for granted. And once you decide, okay, I'm going to start a company and I'm going to do it with someone else, you immediately now need to convince someone else if you want to change your mind on something. And I, I think people really undervalue the option value and flexibility. I, I think explore what you want to do before committing is really like the, the key thing. And keep yourself flexible. Um, and no, I think that that's... Yeah, I, mean, I agree. It, yeah, but, but I think and you can definitely do that within the framework of a company. But I think you have to be wary about starting a company um, too rigidly because you're, you're going to change what you do. I mean, people talk about pivots all the time as if it's like it didn't, didn't, your thing didn't work, so you pivoted. Facebook pivoted many times. Um, it's just that, you know, we, we kind of we were college, and then we were not college, and then we were just a website, and then we were a platform, right? And um, you're going to change what you do. Have, There's another word for the kind of pivots you were talking about, expansions. Well, right? um, That's not what people usually mean by pivoting. Well, you know, I... <laughs> flexibility. Yeah. Follow your instincts. Very easy to say, and incredibly difficult to do. A little more context? Uh, everybody, when they're wondering about what they should do after college or after university, you have the weight of expectations on your shoulders. You have college bills that you might have to pay. You have parents who have expectations for you in a particular direction. And whether you like it or not, subconsciously, you carry all that stuff with you. And if you want to go in a different direction from what you've been spent your, the previous 20, 25 years of your life almost being programmed to go and do, that's a very difficult thing to do. What matters eventually is the quality of the investment decisions made 
and the acuity with, with which those are made. And it's somewhat similar to the analogy that people used to make when newspapers were read more frequently than they are today, which is not to get sucked up into believing your own headlines. And so I think, especially in the today's era, humility also goes a long way particularly in which, if you don't make the decisions correctly, can uh, uh, hand you out a, a right royal spanking, uh, no matter uh, how uh, high your public profile. Do you believe that there will be another Steve Jobs in the next five to ten years? Uh, no, any more than I believe there'll be another Larry Page or Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates. They're each very distinctive personalities. Now, if the question is, is there somebody whose name we don't know today, who 20 years from now will be very well known because of a company that he or she started? Absolutely, yes. Why do I uh, think Sequoia is the preeminent venture firm? I don't. Um, I think, I think, I always feel we're always one step away from going out of business. And um, that we can never take anything for granted and that we're only as good as our next investment. The advice that people should follow their instincts, whether I could say a little bit more about that. I think it helps if you try and enter an environment where you think you can learn a lot, whether that's inside an organization. It doesn't have to be a company. It can be, a, be a, some other organization or around people that you particularly admire, that you can learn a lot from. And I think that just helps expand one's horizons. It also gives the individual a sense of what excellence is really like. How realistic is it for a company to do B2C and B2B at the same time? Uh, we, I, I'm sure there are examples of companies that have pulled it off. Um, I just think right at the beginning, you have to concentrate on doing one thing super well. And once you've done that, uh, the second thing becomes easier, particularly if you're dealing with... It's one thing to sell precisely the same product to both audiences. And if you can do that, bless your heart, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good thing to do. But I think it's very... If you've got to tailor the product differently, I think that's a very dangerous thing for a company to do uh, right at the start. You know, it's no coincidence Apple under, under Steve Jobs was not prepared to compromise, change and alter its products to please corporations. They would um, build products and if corporations wanted to buy them, so be it. But they weren't going to come up with, with special products. It was an approach that uh, obviously served them very well. And then as you know, there are plenty of examples of other companies that have, over time, succeeded with two different sorts of distribution channels. Plenty of examples of that. But at the beginning, I think simplicity is a virtue. I think that's really important, especially for young people, to actually do that self-assessment and find that passion. Do you have any advice? I think many, many kids and many grown-ups do figure out, uh, over time, what their passions are. And sometimes we let our... I don't think it's that hard. I think what happens, though, sometimes is that we let our intellectual selves overrule those passions. Uh, and so that's what needs to be guarded against. Uh, kids are very good about knowing what their passions are. 
I love that because I, I, I think I, I've seen you describe this way that you've always maintained that sense of wonder. I think that's what kids have, but we lose it somehow along the way. Yes, you, everybody. It's a gift if you can keep your childlike sense of wonder, uh, and it helps with creativity. Uh, it helps to have fun. Uh, you know, you laugh more and play more if you keep that childlike sense of wonder. What we're really focused on is thinking long term, putting the customer at the center of our universe and inventing. Those are the three big ideas. I don't think that you can invent on behalf of customers unless you're willing to think long term because a lot of invention doesn't work. Uh, if you're going to invent, it means you're going to experiment, you have to think long term. So these three ideas, customer centricity, long term thinking, and a passion for invention, those go together. That's how we do it. And by the way, we have a lot of fun doing it that way amazing about your success is that you actually, your timing was good too. How does uh, an innovator actually identify that historical momentum, that Kitty Hawk moment? You, re you recognize what was happening with the internet and you said, you know what, there's actually a room for me to start with books and then move on. How do you do that? How do you find the time and the momentum, the zeitgeist? I think everybody has their own uh, passion, their own thing that they're interested in. And then you're very alert to the things that that are in the sphere of influence of that passion. So your passion has led you to change the world, frankly, with Amazon. But yet you've got Blue Origin, you've got Bezos Explorations. Why can't somebody like you just rest on your laurel? Go play golf. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I love what I do. I also have four kids. I have a wife that I love. I have a lot of passions and interests. Um, but I, one of them is the pace of change. Um, I love the fact that I get to work with these smart, big, smart teams. Uh, the people I work with are so smart, and they all, they're self-selected for loving to invent on behalf of customers. And so, you know, it's not, uh, do I love every moment of every day? No, that's why they call it work. <laughs> there's, you know, there's always, there are things that I, that I don't enjoy, but if I'm really objective about it, and I look at it, I'm so lucky to be working uh, alongside all these passionate people, and I love it. How do you remain nimble? Because there is somebody in their dorm room who could eat you up for lunch the next day. You know, I, my belief on this is, uh, first of all, that's completely correct, and you can't, uh, you can never assure anybody that that can't happen. But I think if you have a customer-centric culture, that cures a lot of ills, because we wake up, if, let's say you're the leader in a particular arena. Uh, if you're competitor focused and you're already the leader, then where does your energy come from? Whereas if you're customer focused and you're already the leader, customers are never satisfied. So you always, if you're customer focused, you're always waking up. How can we make that customer say, wow? How can we, you know, our energy, our passion, we want to impress our customers. We want them to say, wow, is that kind of divine discontent uh, comes from observing customers and noticing that, you know, things can always be There's always be a better. sense that people have that um, there are, it's really hard to come with answers. All the answers have already been discovered in one way or another. And I think that's not the case. And I, I sort of, um, I sort of uh, divide things up into conventions, which are things everybody knows to be true. 
At the other extreme, there are mysteries, things that nobody can figure out. And in between are these things that I call secrets, which are things that you could figure out. They're hard. But if you really work at it, you could, you could figure something out. And, um, and one, one thought that I have is that there are many secrets left to be discovered. I actually think that this is a somewhat non-conventional view because I think the conventional view is that most secrets have been discovered and that there's nothing new to find. And so, uh, and this is certainly, is, it is true certainly of certain uh, domains, but I think most things are not like that. And I think there are a lot of fields where, where new things can be found. Um, we're often discouraged by sort of a version of globalization. We think there are you know, seven billion other people in the world and there will always be someone who will have already thought of it. And if no one will have thought of it before us, it must be almost impossibly hard. And so it ends up being this sort of self-fulfilling thing where we don't even try. And I, th I do think the only people who will discover secrets are people who work at it and who try doing it. And I, I think that many of these um, great companies have something like this at the core. It's, it's some, some domain of knowledge, some area where people think they can figure out a lot more. At, at, at PayPal, we were very interested in this, in the intersection of money and cryptography. Could you create a new digital currency on the internet? And, um, and you know, it was a fairly idiosyncratic field. There were a you know, small number of people working on it. There was a you know, this financial cryptography community. Um, and you could sort of understand the field. You could get to the frontiers. And you could, uh, you could, um, you could explore it quite a bit more. And so, so, the, that, you know, so I think the second idea I want to leave you with is there still is a frontier left, and the frontier is not infinitely far away. There's certain places where the frontier has been closed, so geographically it's kind of closed. But there are many places where you can still get to the frontier, and it's actually, uh, there are many directions you can go where the frontier is close and where there's a lot left to be, uh, left to be discovered. You have developed this at least profile of a young man in a hurry. I mean, you know, I... With I, all the rough elbows that uh, suggests. You know, I think it's if. How should I put it? Um, we look at all of the cities and, and we know that the transportation systems there are just not, they're not serving everybody's needs. I mean, even here in New York with a great mass transit system, there's still two and a half million cars going over those bridges every day. And so we just believe we can help the city do better. I guess most most successful entrepreneurs are not waiting for it to come to them. for success and not waiting for progress. Um, we are generally a little bit um, forward leaning when it comes to trying to make progress happen. For me, it's about problem solving and loving to solve problems. And so if you are passionate about solving problems, I, and some, sometimes I just like to describe this as like, imagine a really great math professor with no problems to solve, yeah. right? The great, a great math professor is somebody who, who wants the hardest problems, who wants to solve them and loves solving them. That's kind of how I feel about my work. And so it's not about a man in a hurry. It's more about really interesting problems in the world and how do you lean into them and solve things that people maybe thought weren't even possible to solve. And that's mm -hmm. fun. You know, for us, we don't really aspire to be somebody other than ourselves. Um, and part of being ourselves is sort of reimagining the way things could be done. So we like to take the impossible, we like to take the old way of doing things and just completely change it. That's part of who we are. Um, but 
I mean, there are great CEOs, great founders, great leaders out there, and there's, there's something to learn from all of them. In fact, there's something to learn from the ones that aren't great too. Like, again, you know, everybody sees success, they see failure, and we see that personally and we should learn from it, but why not learn from other people's success and failure? There's something to learn from all of them. I mean, it depends how you look at it, but when you have sort of this, this problem-solving culture, uh, the core group sort of depends on the problem that's being solved. And so it's very dynamic what that core group is and on what problem. Um, I have 10, 11 direct reports. And then depending on what the problems of the day are, can determine how many of those folks are in a particular problem. And by the way, a lot of problems getting solved that I'm not involved in. And so figuring out which ones that you go into, how do you prioritize it, um, how do you get to the future faster is, is one of the things we spend a lot of time sort of architecting. Silicon Valley and the, sort of the state of Silicon Valley, do you think it's at a high point of, of invention right now or at a plateau or at a low point or well, I think there's, jumping off? Yeah, it's funny. It, it reminds me, like, I, you know, look, I've been an entrepreneur since the mid-late 90s. And I remember in 2001, I was raising money. This is the, I was raising money in the fall of 2001 for a networking software company. And I remember going to one of the, one of the restaurants in Palo Alto, which used to be bustling, and like you'd have to book, like get a reservation like a month ahead of time or something, and it was empty. It was like tumbleweeds. And I remember a VC telling me that all the things that could be invented, this is 2001, all the things that could be invented in software had been invented and that there was no more innovation left in software. And right, so that irrational sort of, there's irrational exuberance and irrational pessimism. Uh, I'm just generally an innovation optimist. I just think there's just problems to be solved everywhere, and once you solve them, you already see what's, you know, you know, I'd like to say boredom is only the result of a lack of imagination. And, you know, the minute you solve one thing, you just sit down for a few minutes, and then you come up with, like, 10 more ideas. So, uh, so I think I'm an optimist, like there's just so much more to do. Um, I think what's very interesting, and, and maybe this is because of our global reach and just where we've been, is Silicon Valley, I think, has been sort of the, the North Star for innovation or, or, or the hub of innovation globally. And I think that is no longer going to be a thing. I think if we go five years out, you're going to start to see hubs of innovation. This is about to be real, at least with a couple major ones, right? I was going to ask you one more question because yeah. our time is up. Um, um, you're worth a lot of money now. What's the most expensive thing you've bought? Hmm. Well, I think what a lot of people don't know is that I've never sold a single Uber share. So um, the most expensive thing I bought, I bought before Uber started, and it's my home. And it was right around a million bucks. So I got a mortgage. You still have a mortgage? Yeah. Amazing. Fabulous. Thank All you right. so much, Travis. Cheng okay. Kong is the Cantonese word for the Yangtze, China's longest river. And it is more than just a name for Li. You got Yangtze River. Yeah. 
誒、呃，當我夜熱衰做生嘅時候， yeah. 我表面係好謙虛，但裏邊好泡，唔係咁好。Mm. 所以我自己勸戒自己，做個名長江，你要做到長江咁大嘅水呢，你一定要謙虛，一定要吸收其他水泥。你好似長江，我就中間公司呢，有成就。但係我經營嘅方式呢，我採用呢 check and balance， 你一定呢要令到用西方嘅管理模式。但係一個內心嘅直覺呢，我就選咗中國瑜伽瑜伽。好有用嗰一拍，咁啊咁多年嚟都證明呢，係我哋都幾好，尤其高級行政人員呢，啲機會睇我哋嘅 turnover 係好少驕傲嘅。What's the lesson? The lesson say you need to be very careful to manage the company, also don't investment and not a gamble. The key pieces of advice Lee Ka-shing is passing on to his sons.